Hello and welcome to Wi-Fi Optional, the weekly tech show where we talk tech so you don't have to. This is episode 16, recorded Monday, March 7th, 2016. My name is Rukshan Wajratna, and as always, alongside me through the interwebs is Mr. Jason Watercott. Hi, Jason. Hello, good sir. How are you? I am actually really well. Um, after all of our internet debacles, we had a couple of uh, hiccups. And hopefully our sound sounds a little bit better this week since we've, uh, we've maybe nailed down yeah. our issues have been in the past. <laughs> we've we, we spent about two hours tweaking this, right? Yeah. Um, what have we got going on today? Oh, I see you moving around the uh, uh, screen here. All right. Uh, just to confuse you. Just to confuse me. Should we get into the news? Let's do it. Our researchers at the University of California, Irvine, have proven that they can copy a 3D model with surprising accuracy by simply recording the sounds that another 3D printer makes while it's making its print. Uh, the servos, pumps, extruders that power the 3D printer produces symphony and mechanical sounds uh, as it's printing away. And those sounds tell a story of how the machine is print, how the machine's print head is moving around, as well as how much plastic filament is being extruded from the nozzle on every pass. Uh, 3D models can be encrypted and electronically protected so they can't be downloaded, opened, or sent to the 3D printer, which helps protect uh, intellectual property. Uh, but with everyone carrying smartphones these days, uh, there's a little that can be done to prevent someone from converting a recorded sound of a 3D printer. Although they need to uh, make sure they, they re, make sure they record the entire printing process, uh, which can sometimes take days. Um, so that that last sentence kind of sums it up. All I can picture is someone, you know, yeah, it's not just like snapping a quick sound clip. They have to, you know, sit there with a recording device for you know eight hours a stretch to record someone printing a, a, a bust of Yoda or something. So. You know, um, in early 2000, right around 2005, 2006, somewhere around there, um, I read an article where uh, a, a group of researchers actually recorded um, the series of clicks from a keyboard, and they were actually able to interpret what the person typed with about 90, 95% accuracy. Uh, again, going back to acoustic, uh, can't think of the name now, uh, acoustic hacking, Um but this article uh, brings to light a good thing. So these 3D print models, you can actually, you know, if you were the creator of it or if somebody else created Freaking, it. is that the word you're thinking of? Yeah, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, you can actually copy protect a, a, a 3D document, uh, but you can only copy protect it, protect it so much. And if somebody can actually go in and, and record the the very specific sounds that the printer makes. And uh, I've actually sat through about a three-hour, I've actually printed a 3D model of a little robot that took about three, three and a half hours, and I, I watched it. And it's it's basically a very repetitive process, and, and after a while you kind of get the, get the idea of you can look the other way and, and kind of hear the printer and go, oh, okay, this is, the, the head's moving this way or, or the, the head's doing this, head's doing that. Um, so that's basically what they've uh, what they've done. They've just written a program that recognizes a sound and go, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. But um, so now, basically, if you're going to do a 3D print, uh, do it in a, a, a soundproof room, pretty much. Well, yeah, it kind of reminds me back in the day when the technology was there, and, and I know it was a big, you know, put your tinfoil hat on situation. 
I don't know, it was the FBI or some government agency had a technology where they could actually scan a window and read the vibrations on the window and, and physically, you know, record it, not, not perfect, you know, verbatim, but a, a conversation that someone was having inside of a house. Um, and that kind of reminds me of the same thing, but the, the, the other thing it reminds me of is, is kind of uh, like someone going into a movie theater with a camera and recording the movie instead of actually having a, a ripped copy of it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you're not actually having the, the legit copy. It's kind of a, a copy of a copy. Um, and we know how that works with the Xerox printer or something like that. It's, it's, it degrades its quality. So I don't see how this would be like a perfect one-to-one um, copy, but it'd probably be something very close. So. Yeah, it probably will be very close. I mean, you might not be able to, even with the acoustic cryptanalysis, that's what it is. I just remembered the word. Uh, even with the keyboard incident, they, they were only able to get about 96% um, accurate to what they found out. But 96% is still pretty good. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to see. I'm sure one, if they were able to perfect it or if they will perfect it, there's probably going to be some, some you know laws behind it or, or they'll have some kind of a DRM behind it. You know, audio too. They'll or or a small speaker that just emits some white noise and blocks the sound right, of it exactly. or something. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, Microsoft invites developers to tinker with Hololens. Microsoft on Monday announced that its Hololens Development Edition was available for pre-order, with units set to ship developers beginning March 30th. The company early last year introduced the uh, holographic computer technology as a feature of Windows 10. It later announced a partnership with Volvo that would allow the application to be applied to the automobile sales floor. HoloLens is a fully untethered and self-contained system that enables holographic computing natively with no markers or external cameras. No phone or PC connections are needed. HoloLens Development Edition will include a clicker, a carrying case, a charger, and a cable, a microfiber cloth, nose pads, and an overhead strap. It will be available for developers in the United States and Canada for $3,000. A steep investment, I think, but... Um, they, I, I can totally see high-end automakers using something like this, where I say, "Hey, you, you want you want to buy this three hundred thousand dollar car? Well, we don't have one here, but hold on a second, let me load up the options that you want. You can actually do a three D walkthrough, and uh, you know, see what it looks like." The cool thing about Hololens too, other than Oculus and these other things, is that it's they can they can dabble on the augmented side of things more than than the other ones can, um, because of the cameras and everything with them. And and I think I think they're two different things. They kind of get grouped into one one area. But I think that you know uh, VR and and AR are kind of the um, iPhone and iPad of the new iPhone and iPad where when the iPad came out, everybody's kind of like, you know, well, it's just another iPhone that, you know, it's bigger. And I don't think it'll be until people start making, you know, use cases for them. Why we're going to see why augmented reality is, is, is just as important as VR. It's going to have its different uses than, than VR would have. So um, I think it's really interesting. And, and um, the only thing with this is I think with the, uh, Rift was around like six hundred dollars or something like that with the development version. Now this is like three thousand, so they're hitting you know more of the Google Glass an investment. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly, hitting more of the Google Glass line of things than than right. uh, than other ones have. So it's it's really interesting. I don't think there's going to be a lot of people that will be buying this. It's going to be more of just the straight developers that'll be that'll be playing around with it. But I guess we'll see. But it's definitely something that'll be very interesting. You know, maybe that's going to be the start. You know, you you push it to the developers, and then if they can find a market, even if it's with high-end retailers, you know, automobile or 
or you know mansions or whatever the case may be um you know and as development goes on maybe the price will come down but who knows it's like you said there's certainly a a, a line in the sand where you can go here's the the uh, the hollow lens and you know here's the vr headset but so we'll kind of watch and see what happens uh third story is uh, a little different um it's back to the uh, hacking side of things. Uh, researchers, uh, the security startup, uh, the Basili Networks, have uh, found a uh, that more than a billion wireless mice and keyboards uh, leave your computer and data vulnerable to hacking. Uh, the weak spot uh, is actually with the dongle in which these devices connect to, um, the little pluggy thing that goes in the USB port. Uh, most wireless keyboards and mice uh, implement encryption, but do not properly verify the incoming signals. Uh, so what this basically means is that a nearby user uh, with an unauthorized device could forcibly insert keystrokes uh, through the same wireless connection that the mouse and the keyboards use. Um, and this is a really scary thing because once they do this um, with keystrokes and mouse strokes, you can basically open up a browser, um, launch any application, you know, download some malware. You basically, you can get in and basically act like you're using the computer without actually being there. So it's kind of a, a, a high level, low level attack of sorts. Um, and right now, um, there's a few companies. I know Logitech uh, is basically uses their uh, unifying receiver. Um, and then there's a couple of Lenovo, uh, their 500 series wireless products um, are currently um, having some issues with it. And then Dell, the KM632, KM714 mouse and keyboard combos are also affected. Um, the company did tell Forbes that there is a patch um, that is being readied um, to fix the 714 models. Um, but some of the devices may need to replace. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I've always myself thought it interesting how... Um, they go about just kind of the effortless pairing that goes on with these. And I guess uh, um, we've said it a million times in the last couple episodes, but there's that balance of uh, convenience to security. And this is one of the situations where um, security loses. <laughs> you know, the the interesting part is this is actually the, uh, if you have one of these uh, Logitech, we'll see if I can uh, get it to focus. But this is actually the receiver. It's 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 really tiny. Um, I've put some nail polish on here so I can kind of color code so I know which receiver goes with which device. Uh, but the, the, the where I was going with that is the, the funny part is there is actually a management software, a piece of software that comes with this receiver. Um, I should say it comes with the receiver, but there is a piece of management software. Nobody uses it, and myself included. I never really needed to use the management software. It's basically a plug-and-pray device. Um, you plug it in, and, and, it, and it just works. But uh, lo and behold, it's the, the encryption only works one way, so it's like a, a, a simplex form of encryption. Um, but Logitech did uh, announce that they have a patch, and uh, I downloaded it, and I ran it, and it, it uh, updated the, the firmware in the, in the receiver. And there's tons of them out there. I mean, I have three devices. I have a, there's a mouse, and, you know, a lot of times I have a couple of tablets that I control. I mean, this is a mouse and a keyboard. All of these use the same exact receiver. Um, and the other part is this article was buried inside something that was buried inside something that was buried inside something. So they certainly didn't uh, make a big deal out of it. I don't know if it's because of a, of a PR issue. They're like, well, we don't want to come up with another... Um, incident where you know this is gonna look bad on the company but you know it's certainly something that's concerning that needs to be that needs to be fixed for sure and 
Nope, we may have lost Jason. So we're going to go on to the next story. I think Jason's going to hop back on again. Um, Scott Kelly's first back, first day is back on Earth. Scott Kelly is enjoying his first week back on planet Earth after spending 340 days in space. On Friday, the NASA astronaut held his first press conference since he's been back answering questions about readjusting to gravity, staying healthy, and lining up the future of his career. Uh, Kelly has already flown a total of 180 days in space prior to his year in the International Space Station, said the effects of his space trip are much more pronounced than his previous missions. My level of muscle soreness and fatigue is a lot higher than it was last time, quote, unquote, um, he, he told reporters. Kelly said he's having some difficulty adjusting to Earth's gravity again, especially when it comes to throwing objects. He said he tried to shoot some baskets yesterday, but none of the balls made it to the net. Throwing things, uh, quote, Throwing things, you then tend to underestimate the effects of gravity. Currently, Kelly has spent a total of 520 days in space, but he said he's not opposed to adding to that number. He said it's doubtful he'll, he'll fly with NASA again, since there are many other astronauts who are also qualified to fly. But he said it's possible he may join up with a commercial space flight company in the future. Maybe in the next 20 years, you can buy a cheap ticket to go for uh, to go into space for a little visit. Um Scott Kelly, the interesting part about this is Scott Kelly has a twin brother. And uh, so one of the experiments that they did was they sent Scott up while they kept the twin brother. And they, so they had kind of a somewhat of a baseline um, and they uh, were doing tests. And then uh, he said they, they, they estimate about um, six months to a year's worth of tests left uh, for him to, you know, they're going to do all kinds of tests to see how, how his muscles worked and, you know, what kind of strength he has and, and all that fun stuff, but uh, um, it was really interesting to see him him fly back. And uh, I've been following his uh, Instagram feed, which is another funny part. He's up there, and then he's actually able to post pictures to um, Instagram. And uh, it was there were some very amazing pictures that he was able to take. I, w- I would uh, it was all it was almost like he was you know you were up there with him. Um, and, and he, they did some fantastic uh, um, experiments. He was able to actually grow plants, um, not potatoes like the like the movie Martian, but he was able to actually uh, um, get some flowers to bloom. And there were some crazy experiments that they did. And I also just landed from the moon in outer <laughs> That's space. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but the the truth is, it's, it's it's really interesting that he spent that much time up there and like you said the his instagram account the pictures some of them just look absolutely unreal like i it almost seems like they were blown out with with colors or you know hdr photos or something but they were absolutely just amazing um what he saw did up there and all the days he was in space um but it's really interesting these stories of of you know what he talks about not being able to throw the ball and and do all it seems like it's more of like how his brain trained when he was up there. Not so much that his muscles are, are weak. It's like that his body got so used to how life was up there more so than like, you know, his little wimpy arms can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? And I think that's, that's probably the most interesting thing is it seems like the space has more effect on a, on a person's brain than it does on their actual physical, physical prowess. But will it be interesting to see? Because I know uh, one of the big—I um, don't know if it was a public agenda—but one of the big agendas of, of sending him out was to see how humans would cope um, if we wanted to, or if and when we wanted to send someone to Mars. So you know, he was up there for for a year, um, but uh, we'll see what the tests prove and uh, uh, how things go. 
Exactly. We are off to the two big uh, stories. Um, <laughs> Baltimore police used secret technology to track cell phones in thousands of cases. I think we've uh, we briefly touched base on this one uh, or, or this topic uh, back in our early uh, Wi-Fi optional episodes. It, essentially, there is this um, device that goes by the name of uh, this, the Stingray. What that actually does is it simulates a a cell site. So you can take this device, you know, mounted in a in a in a vehicle, an unmarked van that says cable company, and uh, um, you can drive around. And this van with this Stingray device will actually simulate a cell site. So your phone will actually connect to the to the Stingray, and then in turn the Stingray will capture a a vast amount of information on you. Um, so the story says that uh, the police department used this. The Baltimore Police Department has used an invasive and controversial cell phone tracking device thousands of times in recent years following instructions, uh, while following instructions from the FBI to withhold information about it from prosecutors and judges, a detective revealed in court testimony. Testimony shows for the first time how frequently city police are using cell site simulators, more commonly known as a stingray, technology that authorities have gone to great lengths to avoid disclosing. A uh, device mimics a cell phone tower to force phones within, within its range to connect. Police use it to track down stolen phones or find people. Non-disclosure agreement presented for the first time in court last week explicitly instructs prosecutors to drop cases if pressed on the technology. It tells them to contact the FBI if legislators or judges are asking questions. A uh, detective uh, from the police department's advanced uh, technical team testified that the police own a hailstorm cell site simulator, um, the latest version of the Stingray, and I've used the technology 4,300 times since 2007. Now, in comparison, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement says its officers have used the device about 1,800 times. Police in Tallahassee say they've used it more than 250 times. Police in Tacoma, Washington, 170 times. So the question is, is it, uh, you know, does it give, is it is it legal, first of all, and or is it kind of one of those gray areas where, you have the technology. Are you gonna Are you gonna use it? Well, that's the thing. Is my my first question is how do these things work? You know, the, to me, there's there's a handshake involved between a, a handset and a and a cell tower. Uh, we both we both came from that world and kind of know how things work. So they have to have something that almost they, they got some kind of in or a back door from cell companies i don't know how they could possibly do this and the calls would still work you know what i mean because in the back end this thing has to reconnect back to the cell tower and push their call through and they're just kind of stripping the data off as it comes through the stingray so my question is, is how how do they have this technology and two is you know like you said is it legal or not i i guess it's the same thing as a wiretap, but are they getting warrants to use this thing? Or is this just something that they're driving around and, you know, war driving in a van, you know, an FBI van that people always name the routers after and, and, uh, and just pulling off everybody's cell signals. I don't know if, if, you know, what, what they're actually doing or how they're going about it. I guess those are my two questions. Um, you know, the first part of the question, you're, you're exactly right. There has to be some kind of a conduit to each and every carrier, uh, my guess is this probably is like a transparent man in the middle attack. Um, so it just sits there in the middle, captures the information, then it just passes that information, information along. And then anything that comes back from the site 
it hits the stingray, goes through the stingray. Stingray just basically is is, is almost like a transparent um, conduit. So it's passing it's passing through the the IMEI or the or the information from the phone right. back to the cell site. My guess. Yeah. The the second part, which is the interesting one, is so they would use these. Um, and this is a pretty lengthy article, and and we'll we'll put this in the show notes. Um, you keep reading deeper into the art, into the article. It says you know they they went and prosecuted these people, and when it got to the point where it, the the people that were arrested, did you find arrested, this information? Yeah. We rest our case. <laughs> yep. And if they if they start pushing them, saying saying how did you find out, they would drop all charges. So it's it's almost like well, are you gonna are, are you gonna arrest somebody and then kind of put the fear of God in them and then if they don't ask any questions, we're yep you're busted. But if they start asking questions, fine, we'll let you go. Um, you know, knowing that the person that just got busted going, well, oh, hey, they found out about this, so I, I need to be a little more careful. So it's, it, to me, it almost sounds like somewhat of a shady tactic, but, you know, there's, it, knowing them, I'm sure there's some kind of legality behind it, and there's some kind of a, a very fine line that where they can kind of step on and say, yeah, it, it still falls under the legal boundary, but... um, it, it's It's very interesting how they can use a technology that uh, you know, to this extent, and some of the articles they're saying people that uh, you know fail to pay parking tickets, they went after based on you know using their cell phone numbers. Well, and then uh, I think we lost Jason again, so we're gonna let him reconnect. But uh, we're gonna jump on to the next article. Uh, with thirty million more in hand, IFTTT or IFT looks to the looks to the Internet of Things. The uh, IFTTT or IFT, as they as they're called. It's a, it's a very clever service. Uh, it neatly describes the function of the product. It essentially is a giant switchboard to connect devices, anything from Facebook to text messages to telephone calls. Users can create recipes in which an action on one service can trigger an action to another entirely different service. The idea, according to co-founder Lyndon Tibbetts, is to give people more creative control over many online services they use on a daily basis. So even if your text message service by itself is not to be, is not meant to be sort of an alert system for when your friend checks in on Foursquare. The startup wants you to make that sort of remixing possible. Essentially, what IFTTT or IFT does is you can have multiple devices or multiple uh, sources. You can have your Facebook, your Twitter, uh, and then it links up uh, basically what they call Internet of Things. So if you have a physical device that can connect back to the Internet, for example, your um, your car or your uh, your internet connected refrigerator, for example, and then you can take that device and then a certain action that that internet uh, enabled device does can be paired with something. For example, um, uh, Jason can, and, can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, back in the day we used IFTTT to walk into a certain building and it would automatically. Um, send out an alert saying, "Hey, you've just uh, walked into work. Make sure you uh, uh, punch in at your in your time clock." So we used uh, the GPS on the uh, uh, on the phones uh, to trigger the location, and the GPS would say, "Yep, you just walked into this place." And then that IFTTT recipe would say, "If these coordinates are met on the GPS, then turn on your text messaging app." type up this particular message, and then send it out to this particular number. Um, the interesting part about, well, two interesting things. One, that um, there's an investment firm actually uh, 
gave IFTTT, the, the, the company, $30 million to keep researching this. The other interesting part is that there's a lot of devices that are coming out with internet that with the Internet of Things. Uh, CES this year was just chock full of, of anything from refrigerators to toasters to, to you name it that is going to be connected. And with all the automobiles that are going to come out, they're going to be internet connected as well. So you can actually use this IFTTT um, to make use of it. So you can actually get a car as soon as your car drives into your garage. Um, you know, IFTTT can automatically say, oh, hey, I just realized the car just walked in. I need to sync the MP3 database so you can have all the latest songs. Or um, anytime the car... Uh, you know, pulls in and it's it's low on gas. Even if you don't have the the paid subscription, you might be able to use uh, like the automobile, the the onboard diagnostic port that Jason has. Use something like that that'll report back to your email, look through the emails, and then automatically set set up an IFTTT recipe to send out a text message saying, "Hey, um, your oil needs to be changed." So it's it's certainly very interesting. I have, uh, like you said, with the automatic, I actually have mine set up where I, um, it will message my phone. And since I have an iPhone, if you had an Android, you could do this, but this is the one catch with the iPhones is I have it set up where it'll message me saying, turn off Wi-Fi. And when I get to work within that radius, it says, turn on Wi-Fi. But an Android, it can automatically do that for you. So it basically senses your geo fence, turns it off when you, turns it off when you leave home, turns it on when you get to work turns it off when you leave work, turns on when you get home. That way you can save battery. Um, you know, the only catch 22 to that is you're using more power on the phone to or to basically connect to things. So it's kind of a six to one, half dozen other. But there's a lot of cool things you can do with IFT. And, and uh, I think them going the route of the Internet of Things is, is really the way to go. Um, you know, there's more there. The one thing they're not really built into is with that, like the Amazon Echo. And I know that's with their new two products they just released this week. Um, that's going to be the new thing is voice activated stuff. You know, say, hey, um, you know, there, there's certain things you can you can react directly with like the automatic chip, but you can't actually physically use IFT on some things. Um, but I think that's kind of the the way things are going to go. And, 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 you know, like you said, coming home and having your garage door open for you or the lights turn on or, um, you know, a pot of coffee in the morning or something. I mean, there's so many things you can use if for that. It's, it's really, really cool to kind of to be able to automate your life. And um, I guess them getting $3 million or $30 million, excuse me, is just proof that people see, um, see big things for them ahead. And, you know, the other thing that I could, I could, I could see this going is with all these, uh, uh, you know, micro PCs that are coming out. You know, you can use an Arduino chipset. You can, you know, cook up your own little uh, circuit that does. The new Raspberry Pi that just came out. Yeah, you can use a Raspberry Pi to cook up something that you want. And you can turn around and tie that right into an if recipe. And then, you know, so it's not so much even you don't have to go out and buy something fancy. You can actually cook something up right at home with a very low cost computer um and and it's it still probably has to be fine-tuned a little bit but i can to a certain degree see this method being a little more um a little more secure i wouldn't say it's completely secure because you're not really trying to re-engineer a a, a device to be like an an internet of things device like your refrigerator we talked about it in the past where they found the samsung refrigerator where you're um, Google account information was was out in the open. 
So something like that, you can, instead of it going to the World Wide Web, you can have an Internet of Device, a refrigerator, for example, talk to your LAN and then use a secure system like IFTTT, send out a message instead of having that unsecure device connecting to the Internet. It's uh, kind of a buffer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Kind of like a buffer, so making it a little more secure. Um, but certainly something that we want to keep an eye out, especially with everything that's coming out and everything that wants to connect to the Internet. Um, this is certainly going to be something uh, very interesting. Um, and if anybody needs to try it out, IFTTT is available for Android and iPhone, like you said. Um, even if you don't have a device that's that's connecting to the Internet, there's, there's still a lot of cool things that you can do with that. Yeah, it's definitely something we're looking out for here in the future. Um, on a uh, on a lighter note, something we want to bring up was uh, the uh, death of uh, Ray Tomlinson, who was the father of email. Um, he was the inventor of the contemporary email system and died of an apparent heart attack at the age of 74. Back in 1971, while working for the Boston-based tech firm BBN, Tomlinson developed a system for sending electronic messages between computers on different host networks. While it seems stranger in the modern network world, Previous to Tomlinson's work, messaging systems only allowed you to share messages with other users on the same computer. Uh, perhaps more famously was uh, Thompson's system that introduced the at symbol, uh, which Twitter is very thankful for, um, is to uh, write into the email lexicon as it is. Uh, Thompson received recognition and acclamation for his work, including being inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame in 2014. In 2011, he was ranked fourth on the list of 150 most significant innovators and attended the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very sad day to see him pass away. Um, and and uh, really interesting to see, you know, how different <laughs> things were and, and how, you know, foresight these people had to have back then to to make these things come about that, you know, messaging was, you know, leaving a message on someone's computer and, and them finding it later and not actually sending it anywhere. You know, I was reading through the article and uh, it said that they interviewed Tomlinson afterwards um, and even he didn't re realize the magnitude of what he had uh, he had created. You know, it was many years after everything was was done and over with that everybody looked at it and was like, oh my God, this you know this is the one guy that revolutionized everything. Um, yeah, like you said, the at symbol, um, we would have never really picked up on it had he not you know integrated it to this the, to, to the email system and you know how you parsed out between between hosts and, and where to, to to point the messages and, and whatnot. But there was a there was a long I think it was a longer than the normal show. Uh, my timer ran out, so uh, my yeah, we're about already, about six minutes overdue. Yeah, I think about six minutes over. <laughs> so with that said, oh, it's a little hot there. Uh, thanks to Purple Planet for providing the music. Check them out on purple-planet.com. Very special thank you to thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe right down here. You can also find us on iTunes for the audio-only version and also on our blog site, uh, www.wifioptional.com. The audio will be there. As always, contact us via our website. Like I said, wifioptional.com. We're on Twitter as well, same handle. And from everyone, which is myself and Jason, um, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.